Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So we're in this series, What Jesus Said About That. And today we're going to talk about what Jesus said about sin. And I thought the best way to introduce the topic would be, um, turn to the person next to you and tell them your deepest, darkest, most secret sin. Okay? No. Got a lot of nervous looks going on in that moment. He's like, is he serious? Wait a minute. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. When you bring up the topic of sin, everybody gets a little bit nervous. You know, a little of those guilty feelings and all those kinds of things kind of creep up. And you're probably wondering, what's he going to do in this message? Is this going to be like a hellfire and brimstone message? Um, no, it's not. Well, maybe a little. But no, I'm just kidding. Um, but we are going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about sin because Jesus talked about sin. And we're going to look at a real difficult passage, okay? We're going to look at a, a very difficult um, things that he had to say and why he said them. And then we're going to finish up looking at a story of what Jesus meant and how he actually lived that out to the people around him. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there. It's part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in verse 20, 21, 22. Let's skip down to verse 27, down through the end there, through verse 30. So this is what Jesus said. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if, you right hand, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow. Okay, so we're going to close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. <laughs> That's some pretty strong language, okay? What is Jesus saying here? What is that all about? Now, let me just kind of tell you up front, he is using a very common teaching method called hyperbole, okay? He is not advocating self-mutilation, okay? That's not what he's doing here. But what he is doing is he's making a very strong point, a couple of points when it has to do with sin. So that's what we're going to start today and what he has to say about sin. And I want to start with this thought. Sin is about more than your bad behavior, okay? It's about more than behavior. It's about more than action. See, our tendency... Our tendency is to turn sin into a list of rules and regulations, a, a list of do's and don'ts, or King James Version, thou shalt and thou shalt not, okay? That's what we tend to do. That's how we tend to think of it. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus refers to here, they were experts at that. 
What they did was they formed what they called a hedge around the law. That the law said this, okay? But to make sure that you don't break the law, they kind of formed a hedge of smaller infractions to let you know what it meant to break the law. So if you broke one of those, it stopped you before you actually broke the law, okay? They called it building a hedge around the law. And that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were all about. That's what they did their, their living was all about. And Jesus comes along and he says, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, it sounds like he's setting the bar really, really high. But in truth, he's actually setting it quite low. Because what he's saying in that is sin and the law is not about rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's actually about something much deeper than that. And it goes to the heart of who we are. So he says, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother or sister, Racha, which is a term of derision and contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, what he's saying is that sin goes much deeper than that. It goes to the heart of who we are. When we, when we reduce sin to a list of do's and don'ts, when we, list, when we reduce it to rules and regulations, what we end up doing is trivializing the true nature of sin. And because what we, what we do is we can always point to those things that we don't do. We, we tend to think of sin in terms of like we do our legal system. Like there are misdemeanors and there are felonies. And as long as I'm not a felon, I'm still a pretty good person. Okay? And that's actually how we tend to think of it. It's easier to explain or excuse or even deny the problem that we have ourselves with sin. And what the truth is that sin reveals the truth about who we really are. Because it goes to the heart of everything. Picked up a book not too long ago called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. It's written by a guy named Dan Ariely. Um, and the subtitle is How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. And the premise of the book, he is actually a professor at Duke University, professor of psychology. Uh, actually, one of the head, the chairs there. And um, they've been doing all of these studies on, on, on why it is that, that people... Little lies and little cheating, this and that, um, but, but still, still kind of think of themselves as a pretty good person. He says the, the central premise of, of the book is that we live with these two competing interests. That on one hand, we want to believe that we are good, moral, upright people. But on the other hand, we will lie, cheat, and steal to a certain degree if it will benefit us in some way, shape, or form. Okay, and so what we have, every one of us has this kind of built-in fudge factor, okay? And, and it's, it's the way that we excuse our minor misdemeanors. And, we, and so we can say things like, well, I'm not a murderer, so I'm really a law abider, okay? I'm not an adulterer, so I really am a holy person. And it kind of works that way in every one of us. It's why, for instance, it's why, for instance, even though the speed limit is 65 miles an hour on the freeway, because nobody drives 65, I mean, nobody expects you to drive 65, and I wouldn't want to drive under the limit, so I have this fudge factor of about five miles, yeah, five miles an hour. I can drive 70 miles an hour, and in the spirit of the law, I am being a law abider. Some of us, our fudge factor is a little bit bigger. 
Okay? But, but what he's saying is we all, and the reason we do that is that we want to be able to take advantage of a lie or cheating in some way, if it will advantage us, but we don't want to do it too badly because then we'll have to think of ourselves as really lawbreakers and sinners. And so we all have this fudge factor. And what it does is it allows us to think better of ourselves than we truly are. And the truth is that our sin reveals who we really are at heart. So Jesus says, so you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What he's saying is the problem is not just your behavior or your actions. The problem goes much deeper than that. And we all have these desires. We have a set of desires. Every one of us do. They are good. They are God-given desires. But what sin does is sin in us twists and distorts those desires. And so those things like a very common, um, you know, we have material desires. We want to live with nice things and want to be able to afford nice things. And so that's a good thing. That, that's what keeps us moving forward and advancing and, and, and doing better and striving to do better. But what happens is, is when the desire for material goods gets too strong and twisted, then it turns to selfishness and greed. And then it's something that God gave us that was good and it gets distorted. We have desire for personal intimacy and, 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 and longing for deep relationships. But when that gets twisted, it becomes lust. And lust starts thinking less and less about that other person and more about satisfying my own desires. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, listen, understand, it's not just about what you do and don't do. It goes deeper. It goes to, to the heart of how you think and how those desires drive you. And one of the best things you can do, by the way, is, is just kind of take an inventory. Learn how to manage your mental thought processes. Ask yourself, what are the thoughts that tend to camp out in your brain? Because those are the things that lead somewhere else. That sin is more than just bad behavior. And in fact, it goes more than that. Sin is actually dangerous to your soul. See, that's the real problem with sin is that it continues to erode. It is divisive by nature. It's destructive by nature. It distorts my perception, distorts my desires. It, it becomes divisive in my relationships. If we had time this morning, we'd go around, I'm sure we could have story after story after story of a family, of a marriage, of a friendship that got destroyed because of sin. It could be directly tied back to sin because that's what sin does. See, it distorts, it divides. It erodes my character. And what happens is, is that um, that fudge factor that I was talking about, when we are under pressure or under certain circumstances, the fudge factor tends to expand. I told you he's a, he's a professor um, at Duke University, and, and he came up and discovered an interesting phenomenon, um, he, and he writes about it here. It's called dead grannies. He said, over the... Um, over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. And it happens mostly in the week before final exams and before final papers are due. Of course, I find it very sad that, and I'm always ready to sympathize with the students and give them more time to complete their assignments. But the question remains, what is it about the weeks before finals that is so dangerous to students' relatives? 
After collecting data after several years, Mike Adams, a professor of biology at Eastern Connecticut State University, has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 17 times more likely to die before a final exam. Moreover, grandmothers of students who aren't doing well in class are at even higher risk. (laughs) Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose a grandmother compared with non-failing students. Adam speculates that this phenomenon is due to intrafamilial dynamics, which is to say, students' grandmothers care so much about their grandchildren that they worry themselves to death over the outcome of their exams. This would indeed explain why why fatalities occur, occur more frequently and the stakes rise, especially in cases where students' academic future is in peril. With this finding in mind, It is is rather clear that from a public policy perspective, grandmothers, particularly those of failing students, should be closely monitored for signs of ill health during the weeks before finals. It stretches. And, And here's what it does. Here's the destructive nature of it. Every act of sin leads to a greater likelihood that I will sin again. See, that's the destructive nature. And it doesn't happen all at once. It slowly erodes over time. And all of a sudden, the things that used to bother my conscience don't bother me anymore. Notice that? The things that used to be a big deal to me are not quite such a big deal anymore. I just kind of got used to it. And now the bar moves out. And those things that really used to bother me, now they don't bother me quite so much either. And that's the destructive nature of sin. Ultimately, it destroys our soul. Dan Ariella calls this the what the hell syndrome. (laughs) It's the point that we get to in which we say, why bother trying anymore? It's why someone who is doing really, really good on their diet and goes out to lunch or to dinner with a friend who has a burger and fries and is offered a fry and just takes one French fry. But one French fry leads to another French fry, which leads to another French fry, which gets to the point where forget the salad, I'll have the burger and fries, and they totally give up on the diet. I'll start again tomorrow. See, that's what happens. That's how sin erodes. And finally, we get to a point where it's like, why bother? You said, understand what it does to your soul. The nature of sin is that it's divisive. It separates. It separates us from other people. When our selfishness and our greed get in the way. When our lying destroys relationships. And our cheating destroys relationships. It divides people. It divides us from ourselves, really. Because all of a sudden now, we know deep inside we're not the good person that everybody else thinks we are. And so we live with a hypocrisy and divided nature ourselves. And ultimately, what it does is it separates us from God. And it's that separation that Jesus speaks about when he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, that's really strong language, but he is using it and trying to shock us for a reason. He wants us to realize the impact that sin wrecks on our lives and on our souls. 
It's shocking. But in essence, what he's saying is you wouldn't think of actually gouging out your eye and you wouldn't think of actually cutting off your hand. But what you don't understand is that's what it is doing to your soul every single time. It's dangerous stuff. And Jesus speaks strongly about it because he wants us to understand what it is doing. to us. See, Jesus understood that more than anybody else. And that's why he speaks so strongly about it. It's shocking language to catch our attention, to help us to realize what's really going on. So that, so that we would make a move in a different direction. What he's saying is, you are more than your appetites. You are more than your desires. And do not let your eternity be put into jeopardy for the sake of a temporary satisfaction. Does far more damage than you realize. Now, here's the good news. Sin is redeemable by the grace of God. See, we're not left to that. There is a new alternative. Jesus could talk strongly about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands because he was willing to do something even more drastic than that. He was willing to lay down his life for your sin and for mine. He uses shocking language to kind of get our attention, but then he says, I'm going to do one better than gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand. I'm going to give my life for you. Matthew 20, he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like no one else, Jesus understood the consequences of sin, that every sin comes with a set of consequences. And what he did when he gave his life on the cross was he was accepting the consequences of your sin and mine. That's what that was all about. The ultimate consequences of sin is death. That's why Jesus died. Not for his own sin, because he was sinless. But he did it to pay the consequences for my sin, for yours. When you sin, when I sin, a little piece of us dies every time. Jesus took it all on himself all at once. It's those consequences that he came to rescue us from. You know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believed on him would not perish, but have everlasting life, would not die, but be rescued to a new life. And then verse 17, which you may not be quite as familiar with, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's heart toward you, God's heart toward me is one of love and mercy and grace. And he didn't come to condemn us in our sin. He came to rescue us from our sin. And that comes up very clearly in one of the stories recorded in John's gospel. In John chapter 8, John records the story of a woman who was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. Early in the morning, he's out in the temple grounds and the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring this woman before him and they say to him, this woman has been caught in the adultery in the very act. Now the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus said nothing. Sat down, kind of drew with his finger in the sand. It says they pressed him on this. Now, here's what you got to say. There are so many things wrong about what they are doing in this situation. The first is it's mentioned that this happens early in the morning, which means they were laying in wait. They were just waiting for something to happen. This was a setup from the get-go. 
And when they catch her in the very act, there's, there's no way she can prove her innocence. She's caught dead right. She's guilty. And here's the thing. Where is the man? Where is the man in this story? Because see, according to the law, they both are to be brought before judgment. Okay? But it, it, there's so many things wrong about what they have done. And Jesus knows it. And he's not going to buy into their, their charade here. He's not going to buy into this, this, this thing that they're trying to pull off. And so he just sits there. And they press him on it. They press him on it. And they press him on it. it. says, And finally he speaks. And what he says is, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. And it says that one by one they dropped their stones and walked away, beginning with those who were the oldest. And I think there's something very telling there. That those who were older, as they actually were confronted with their own sin, probably thought about all of those times over all of these years. And they were probably more aware of their sin than anybody else. And the facade that they had kept up, because everybody thought they were fine, upstanding men. They drop their stones, and they walk away. One by one, they all do, until there's no one left. And Jesus looks up, and he says, where are your accusers? She looks, and says, there are none, Lord. And then he says these words. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I don't know how you've ever heard that read or pictured that. Because I think for most of us, I think our picture of that is that Jesus says, okay, I let you off the hook this time, but don't you let this happen ever again. You leave that life of sin. I don't think that's the tone he used. And I think that because of the first part, neither do I condemn you. So go now. Leave this life of sin. You don't have to live this way anymore. There is a different life available for you. See, he wasn't just forgiving her past and forgiving that sin. What he was doing was he was releasing her to live a life, a different life. And the grace of God not only forgives our past, it redeems us and changes and gives us the chance to live a different life. And, and, and Because here's the thing. In a few months... Jesus was going to give his life on a cross for that woman and for those accusers and for you and for me. And here's the thing. If somebody is willing to give their life for you, you do not have to doubt their heart for you. I think Jesus speaks so strongly about sin, not because God is out to get us, not because God wants to condemn us, but because he knows what sin does to our very soul. To the heart of who we are. And what Jesus says about sin is, listen, it's not just about do's and don'ts. It's about something much deeper. And if it's left unchecked, it continues to destroy and divide and erode your very soul. But there's an answer. In the grace of God, there's an answer. I think that's what Jesus said about sin. Would you bow your heads with me? This is God's heart toward you. He loves you. His heart is a heart of mercy and grace and compassion. He loves you 
but he hates the sin that is destroying you from the inside out. And that's why he didn't just come and condemn sin. He came to redeem you from your sin. And you might be here today and you're struggling with a particular issue in your life. It might be a habit or, or, or a behavior or an action, but the, the heart of it goes something deeper than that. And that's where the healing needs to start. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christ follower or how well you've been doing or not doing. His mercy and His grace is unending. He will always forgive. He will always be there to redeem. But we have to be willing to admit our need. And if you find yourself here today in one of those places where there's a struggle, there's a temptation, there's an addiction, there's something going on in your life and you just feel like it's never going to change. I want to tell you, it can. It can, by the grace of God. And I would love to pray for you and with you as we close today. And if there's something going on in your life and it's a struggle and it's been an ongoing battle and you could use some prayer, if you could use just some encouragement today, and I could pray for you as we close. I would love to do that. Would you just raise your hand and hold it up? And when you do, look up and catch my eye because I want to acknowledge you and say I'm praying for you. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, Maybe you're here and you don't know the grace of God. You've been trying to fight this battle all on your own. And and maybe you're doing pretty good at it. But deep down inside, you know you're not the good person everybody else thinks you are. You know deep inside and it bothers you. I want to tell you, there is freedom from that today in the grace of God. And maybe you've never done this before. But today you can take a first step of faith. And all you got to do is admit, Lord, this is my need. This is my sin. And I can't fix this and I can't undo it. In your grace, because of what you did for me on the cross, would you please forgive me and give me that new life? I want to follow you. I'm going to put my trust in you. And you've never done this before, but today for you, it's a first step of faith. Same thing. Would you just raise your hand and hold it up long enough for me to acknowledge you and pray for you as we close? Anyone? All right, so let's pray. Lord, here we are with our struggles, with our failures, knowing that we are in desperate need of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you never stop loving us. Thank you that your forgiveness and your mercy and grace are always there. And I pray, Lord, for those who've raised hands and just said, I need help. I pray that this week they would have a greater sense of your presence, that you would help them in the monitoring of their mind, that you would show them a new way and that you would make those changes from the inside out. In our willingness to admit our need, Lord, may we find your strength for our weakness. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 